The College Game Day podcast is presented by Old Dominion Freight Line, helping the world keep promises. The penultimate college football playoff rankings are here, and are the Buckeyes more alive than we might have imagined? Coaching moves everywhere, including one that is a potential train wreck, though there is certainly a more fitting metaphor that is obvious. This is the College Football Podcast for Wednesday, November 29th. Reese Davis and Pete Thamel. So, Pete, let's start with the College Football Playoff Rankings last night. Abbreviated show of 30 minutes. Georgia's still on top. Michigan moves up to number two. And maybe the thing that caught people's attention that I'm not sure is as big a deal as some might have thought, Ohio State slipping to six. Now, I think that's fairly appropriate six seven somewhere in there I think that's about the right spot for them at the moment but I think there was this uh concern thought observation among some that that might somehow block Texas and or Alabama from jumping them after uh, the conference championship games this weekend in the event that either or both of those teams were to win I do not think that's the case what do you think it's it's interesting Reese um they would kind of need so we've had this like year where the up the year the upset forgot right, right. this is the uh, you sometimes that happens in the first round of the NCAA tournament it's just like total chalk happens like once a decade it's sort of been we have not had that high stakes top five you know update I, I looked the other day um, back through the uh, back through the CFP rankings for ten years and we've never had four undefeateds at this point. Um, and you probably have crack researchers who can confirm that. I just clicked a bunch of times and, and, and looked. So it's just like it has been an anomaly. So we would have to have an anomaly Saturday where all of a sudden everybody loses, I think, for Ohio State to uh, to, to, to wriggle in. Um, it, it It's an interesting litmus. I guess I think the question, and you probably dialed in on this a little bit more than me, would be how many upsets would it take for Ohio State to make it? I, I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I know the answer to that. It's easy. Yeah. Well, upsets. The, you're talking Vegas upsets, or let me say ranking upsets, because that's easier. yeah, ranking upsets. Yeah, because we're going because, off rankings. Uh, yeah. Oregon is favored over over yeah, Washington. By nine. Yeah. And in fact, maybe it could go either way for Ohio State. Basically, the cleanest path, if you want to go by rankings, for Ohio State to get in as the least objectionable option would be Georgia, Michigan, Washington all win. They're one, two, three. They remain undefeated. Florida State is upset by Louisville. By definition, Mm -hmm. uh, those top three winning would mean that Oregon and Alabama have lost, and then you would need uh, Oklahoma State to beat Texas. So basically what you're looking at is Louisville and Oklahoma State. If they win – Ohio State has a has a good chance uh, to get in, I think, and it would be much like last year. It would, I mean, they may still be, you know, in some people's eyes because when I hear people say four the four best teams, I am in favor of that. That is the charge of the committee. They should. That's why we wanted the committee in the first place. But it is by definition subjective, right? So, oh, yeah. so Ohio State might well be one of the four best, but when you start putting together uh, the best team needs to accomplish something in order to be considered in that realm. I think that's when you that's when you wind up with Ohio State being the least objectionable option because you would have otherwise you would have 
teams coming off a loss. Um, you would have in Florida State's case, team coming off a loss without, you know, without its quarterback. And, you know, and by the way, I just want to say this, Florida State, I'm not against you. You know, I don't want to be hypersensitive to this. It's like, a, you know, I mean, we've certainly had our fair share of Michigan doubters, but I brought up the fact that Michigan's strength of schedule, strength of record is not, um, strength of schedule particularly, is not appreciably different from some of the other ones, yet we can, you know, we're not dragging them into, into the equation. And the same is true for Georgia, by the way. Mm-hmm. So when you get down to all of these, everybody should be evaluated. That's all, that's all I mean. But as it pertains to Ohio State, if they are the least objectionable option, they would be at full strength. They would have one loss to the number two team on the road in a game in which they had the ball and had a chance to drive down and win. You know, so they would that's the path for them. They need Florida State and Texas to lose, I think. And yeah. and then if you know, if Oregon wins, then they're kind of in the probably in that mix with Washington because that would leave us with um you know that I mean, there are other paths. They're not likely, but they're possible, and they're probably in decent shape, uh, falling only to number six last night. Yeah, um, I'm a, I'm really excited. I think this is the best championship Saturday, Reese, in the ten years of the CFP. I, I don't I don't even think it's close. I just think they're the kineticism of all the different options are going to raise the stakes and are going to raise the interest level in every game. You're going to have a bunch of people in uh, central Ohio rooting for a mullet in uh, Dallas, right? You just, you know, that's the, 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 the sport gets fun when every corner of the country connects. You're going to have a lot of eyes on Friday night um, on that Pac-12 title game. Uh, I, I just think it's uh, every game has big time stakes, Um and even, you know, the Big Ten game, like, it, it would be interesting. Look, I don't think I was going to win. You don't think I was going to win. I, I was bar- barely healthy enough to, like, feel the team at this point. But, like, you know, it, it would just be – it would be interesting to see all around, like, when something's close in the second quarter or somebody goes up two scores and what, what happens. And, and to feel the ripples of what could be as the day goes on is, uh, is really going to make for a, uh, for, for a fun day of football. Speaking of that Big 12 12- – game and rooting for the mullet and I I actually think with Devondre Sweat Murphy up front for Texas this is a really bad matchup for Oklahoma State but uh, and I know this is a different era of Texas and you can't get too caught up in history you know since 2010 which was the first season when Texas started its conference championship drought Oklahoma State's nine and four against Texas nine now that's a I knew they would have had an above five, like a, a winning record against them. I would not have guessed nine and four. I know Charlie struggled against them. Tom struggled against them for sure. Um, yeah, that old mullet man, he's a crafty he, one. He he is, and I think I might have brought this up earlier, but I I want to say it again. It's where it bears repeating. If Mike Gundy beats Oklahoma in their final season in the Big Twelve, which he has then teases Oklahoma with a backdoor path to the Big 12 championship game by falling behind 24-6 to BYU, then snatches it away from Oklahoma. I know that wasn't on his mind, but when you start looking big picture uh, for fans and and how Oklahoma State and Oklahoma view itself, takes that away from the Sooners last week, takes away their backdoor path to the Big 12 championship game. Then also – beats Texas on its way out to the SEC, 
they all might be so happy in Stillwater, they might forget there's an actual trophy for winning the conference. Just that sort of <laughs> catharticism and that, that uh, yeah. vitriolic feel toward those two programs that they have. And if they could send them both out with devastating losses. I mean, I don't even know if they'll, uh, they might forget to pick up the trophy in the postgame. Uh, you know, and, and as I said, I think I That's said this great... Monday, Gundy w- should never, ever, ever, ever play either of those two again unless it's in the playoff. That's the only way you should ever play him again. Yeah, that's a great, like, philosophical question. Like, does winning your conference mean more than ruining the seasons of both your arch rivals the last time you're going to play it, them, it, or both your rivals? It does. It I, really does. Absolutely I, does. Of course it does. Oh. But I was be, I'm being It's so college football, it yeah. hurts. Yeah. yeah. No, you it's think so oh, you think it's more... Uh, you think it's more important to ruin the ruin things for your rivals? I think it. I think the ruining of the rivals is more <laughs> important than the. Oh yeah. Oh, what will they remember? You know, twenty years from now in Stillwater, you're right. They're not going to remember like you know Ollie Gordon holding the trophy on the stage for the Big Twelve. I think those individual matchups mean more than the league to them. I think yeah. That's a that's a really that's a fair point emotionally it's probably true the pragmatic side of me says that winning yourself accomplishing something Ooh. yourself has to mean more <laughs> should mean more but you're but you're right there is there is uh, some type of uh, joy that's hard to explain that you it's the petty, Reese. Yeah. We talked about it all the time. The we, and I think they will. We have, and that is that is there is some petty out there in the plains. Oh. Well, that's why they're not playing bedlam anymore. It's all yes. it's, it's all petty. This whole thing that we have schedules out to 2096 and all of that stuff and contracts we can't break. Yet we were able to cobble together schedules all across the country in 2020 on about a uh, you know yeah. three days notice or something. So that's Coastal Carolina honest. played, I think, Liberty. They they scheduled. Oh no, BYU. they played BYU. BYU. They scheduled on a Thursday. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wait, it can it can be done. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Best in Game is brought to you by Old Dominion Freight Line, helping the world keep promises. Then Best in Game and Best in the Rankings, still the Georgia Bulldogs, 29 consecutive wins, SEC Championship game against Alabama. And uh, for Kirby the Great, there is still one more world to conquer, and that is beating Alabama in Atlanta, uh, something that Georgia hasn't done in this SEC championship game era. In fact, the dogs have never beaten the Crimson Tide in an SEC championship game and haven't beaten them in Atlanta. Also lost a national championship game on the Tua to Devante second and 26 throw in overtime, the 2017 championship game, 2018 it was played in January. So a lot coming that way. College game day will be there. All kinds of guests coming in. Uh, We'll hear from the Pac-12 champion, all of those things coming up on College Game Day. And when Bill Connolly joins us in a few minutes, we're going to break down that game extensively and also talk with Bill a little bit about 
What is the margin when you start comparing strength of schedule ranks where it really matters? I mean, everybody knows if you've got a strength of schedule that ranks sixth, say like Ohio State, that it's better than Georgia's, which is 59th. But when you start saying, well, they've got the 39th toughest schedule as opposed to the 52nd, is that one statistically significant? We'll get Mr. Numbers in on that because you start throwing the throwing the numbers around and maybe it doesn't really mean as much as people might think in terms of ranking those things. But the other, the other storyline, Pete, that happens this time of year, something that you're up to your eyebrows in at the moment, all of the coaching changes, um, Elko to A&M, Indiana's making a change, Jonathan Smith to Michigan state. And then the theater of the bazaar, because as you texted me last night, only in this sport, Apparently, Bob Petrino is going back to Arkansas, not as head coach, uh, but as offensive coordinator, which, look, I've got a lot of respect for Bob as a play caller and as an offensive mind. Uh, There is a a political side to this, a structure side to this, a, a fan unity side to this that I do not understand because if you start having success and Sam Pittman wants to have success more than anything in the world. And I don't, that's great. If he thinks Bob Petrino's the guy, go ahead. But there's something inherently unsettling to the stability of the program. It seems to me that if you bring in the guy who used to be the head coach, who has uh, been responsible for their most recent glory days, if you want to call it that, at least the best Arkansas has been in, in a number of years, people are going to start calling for him to be in charge. And then does that make, does that fracture things even further? It's a, it's a strange hire in the second straight unusual offensive coordinator hire that Sam Pittman has, has apparently made. Yes, uh, I think this fascinating in a lot of ways, Reese. Remember, we had talked about this on the pod sometime in the middle of the season. Pittman has that interesting clause in his contract where if since 2021 he falls below 500, the buyout drops significantly. So he is a game or two above 500. Um, he beat, remember he beat Florida and then FIU late in the year. They, they had been in a pretty good funk before then. So next year, you're going to have the duality for Sam Pittman of if they lose, people are going to say, oh, his buyout's cheaper now, like 25% cheaper now. Maybe they're going to fire him. Or if they win, people are going to say, oh, it's, well, it's Bobby Petrino. You better, you better watch your back. So it's, it, if the offense goes and look, Bobby Petrino is a maestro of offensive play yes, calling. He, he has been. They they were actually not great at AM this year, but they were pretty good. Um and but he has a long history, but he also has a long history of duplicity, right? If you go back to Jetgate, if you go back to the Falcons, um, if you go back to all the, you know, the secret interviews and the times he stabbed Tom Jurich in the back. So um and then obviously there was his downfall at Arkansas. But it's college football, man. People people don't remember the neck brace. They remember the. I think he was twenty one and three, something like that. His last two years, maybe a little a little more than that. He, but it was, I believe it went Sugar Bowl, Cotton Bowl, or Cotton Bowl Sugar Bowl um, to uh, to to end it. So look, he had Arkansas a teeming, vibrant factor in you know in the rugged SEC West. Um, you know when it was when it was really rugged. Um, he had great, great players, great skill, great quarterback development. I mean, there's a lot of good there. Um, 
but that's uh, it is it is a, just a quintessentially college sports embrace of someone who brought your university national scorn um, with the way they did it. And my understanding, Reese, and this is very college football too. In order to do this, because he was fired for cause last time, obviously he you know he hired his mistress and lied to his bosses. Mm-hmm. That was really like the what what happened. He didn't get in a motorcycle accident. The motorcycle accident revealed all the uh, all the other things. And so uh, the president of the school actually had to sign off on this because if you're fired for cause at Arkansas, there needs to basically be a presidential pardon to bring you back. Mm-hmm. So Bobby has been pardoned, um, and uh, and he will be back calling plays. I will say this to Bobby Petrino's credit. Um, I made a lot of calls to A&M yesterday because the, Arkansas, to the highest levels, uh, not surprisingly, was was vetting him through through A and M. Hey, what was he like? How did it go? Were there any issues? And he had a very quiet year off the field at A and M. There was not tension. He was a good guy in the building. He treated people well. Bobby Petrino did not treat people well at every stop. I think that's a pretty consistent uh, consistent theme of his interpersonal relationships. Is not a strong point of his calling plays. Is so give give him any honestly when he went to Missouri State he kind of disappeared for a while and. I'm not going to sit here and proclaim Bobby Petrino's a changed man because leopards have spots and everything, but there was enough self-awareness and humility where he went to Texas A&M and you know, stayed in his lane and, and did his job and did it fairly well. I always want to be willing to forgive people because all of us all of us have fallen short. You know, all of us have have had things happen that we would like to do over and take back and I don't think um you know, I don't think sometimes if, if someone has a misstep, no matter how egregious, um, well, there are lines, um, obviously. So let me rephrase that. Not no matter how egregious, but there can be pretty significantly egregious missteps that, you know, that can be forgiven. Um, the, the, because this comes to, I mean, I know the situations aren't analogous, but it reminds me of, say, when, when Michael Vick, uh, had the dog fighting thing got in trouble, and then when when he had you know served his punishment, uh, people said, "Well, he shouldn't he shouldn't be on a football team." And and I look, you can have that take if if you want to, but my question then becomes: if someone has has fallen short morally, ethically, legally, or whatever, what what will you allow them to do? You know, can they can they work in your insurance company? Can they work in, in the service industry? Would you want them uh, working in your, you know, in your store, your business? Your, what would you let them do? So once, once penance has been paid, then I don't have a big problem with you know, Bob Petrino being back in the mix. I do think it's odd from Arkansas' standpoint that they would want to invite the litany of neck brace signs that they're going to get. The litany. The internet had fun yesterday. Yeah, Reese. I know. Yeah, the, internet the, had the fun. litany of motorcycle jokes that they're going to get. Now, maybe, maybe it'll it'll go away. You know, it'll pass, and the first time he comes through, it's no big deal. I also think that yeah, those SEC student sections are forgiven. Yeah, right. But you know, maybe they'll they'll <laughs> go on to the next thing. You know, so maybe sure. maybe this will work out because he yeah, he has been humbled for sure, and you know maybe this is you know this is an opportunity for him to stay in the sec but i do i do think that you know that danger is there the i don't know if danger is the right word but the possibility is there for just what we outlined earlier 
And But I'll say this for Sam Pittman. If he is secure enough to bring in Bob Petrino to Arkansas as his offensive coordinator, uh, you know, I would probably I would probably lean toward going to the Mike Gundy method and going and finding some guy that no one knows about. But but Sam Pittman doesn't have the equity at his place or the latitude at his place to go take a chance on somebody you know from Division Three who's tearing it up. Mike Gundy does. So Sam Pittman needed to find more of a proven commodity, and I guess he's secure enough to do it. And hey. You know, on this podcast, we root for things to work out. So I hope it works out well for Sam and for Bob, who, for all of his, for all of his issues, um, you know, I've had no personal dealings with Bob Petrino that were particularly unpleasant. You know, so I mean, it's uh, you know, so I don't, wish, I don't wish him ill. I hope he and uh, I hope he and Sam get along famously, and and Arkansas is rocking next year. It'll be interesting to see for sure. I'd like to see the genesis of that idea if it came closer to Walmart headquarters or Sam Pittman's that's office. A, it's, I, that's a fair I got a feeling where that graph would trend to. Me, but me too. And that, I'm, a, I'm a bit of a cynic, as you yeah, know. Yeah, and so. it, further, it further underscores just what we were talking about at the beginning. Because if you're not in charge of making your own hires, then demise almost always just around the corner so we'll see how it goes i hope it goes well sam's likable he's a friend of college game day he's funny when he comes on and he seems to be a really good guy and you root for good guys to do well so hopefully he will what's the what's the other hot button coaching issue you're following right now pete well, Sean Lewis landed at San Diego State on uh, Tuesday, and uh, I think it's really a really good move. San Diego State's a place where the, the, the stadium was empty this year. They were sub-100 in offense on a lot of things, and they need to stand out, Reese, in a pro market, right? You're competing with the Beaches. You're competing with the Padres, and they have Snapdragon Stadium, $300 million. That's their final crown jewel to try to get you know snapped up by a Power 5. And they need a team that people want to go watch. And Sean Lewis's teams are always exciting. They score a ton of points. The COVID year always stands out to me because they led the nation in both yards and points when they were playing the MAC only schedule. Um, they obviously, he obviously had those like grueling triple out of conference. Uh, you know, he would have to play three road games like Oklahoma, Washington, Georgia, yeah, stuff like right. that, like yeah. crazy stuff when he was at Kent. But. Um, he, you have an instant identity right now. You think San Diego State football, you know, in your mind what it's going to look like. There's going to be wide splits, fast tempo, ball going down the field, pushing it. So, uh, I think a really good match. Uh, it obviously didn't work out for Sean Lewis with Dion, although he did give him some nice moments of excitement on offense and really, I think developed Shador Sanders, um, which shouldn't go overlooked, um, to, you know, into an NFL prospect, but, um, yeah, so I think that, and then, uh, you know, the Boise situation is interesting, Reese, because it doesn't look like they're going to fill it this week. And there's a very good chance on Saturday, um, it'll be a good game. I think they're three point favorites uh, against UNLV, the fighting Barry Odoms, as we're about to bring Bill, Bill Connolly in here. Um, and if Spencer Danielson hoists that trophy above his head and passes it on to, uh, you know, Ashton Genty, uh, next to him, that's a pretty powerful thing. That's a that's a powerful thing for a university president to say. We don't want that guy hosting the trophy. We're going to bring in someone else. So it'll be interesting at Boise what what happens there. Spencer Anderson has the players lobbying for him publicly, carrying on their shoulders, dumping Gatorade on him, um, and he's really been a uh, 
electric bolt of positivity at a program that had clearly been mired in a negative time. So it's been it's been fun to see those guys come alive, to see Boise back as the brand we know it, and he has clearly done uh, yeoman's work in revitalizing that place in short order and giving him a chance to win a conference championship. And the question then becomes, is he a good interim coach or is he the guy for the long haul? Because a lot of guys have uh, caught that bolt of energy. Uh, the king of catching that bolt of injury, uh, energy is my friend Ed Ogeron, uh, who's who's done it, you know, on a couple of occasions, very notably. And Brian Harson is lurking right there. Is that is that the nah, other Harson's not that's not it. He's not an option. That's yeah. not it. No, that's is he not getting that's back not in? gonna happen. Is he getting back in? I have not heard of him uh in any head in the thick of any head coaching mixes. So um yeah, there's uh that fired coaches are tricky, man, even when they've been really good. Like that's just I always say in the market generally, not specifically to Brian, um Fired coaches tend to overestimate themselves by like 30 to 40% because they see the good. And look, the Brian Harson good was really good, Reese, mm-hmm. right? Yep. You're winning Fiesta Bowl. Like, you're, it's really good. But the world remembers Auburn. And you have to go back channel and work hard in the search industry and network with ADs to help them remember the boys. Mm-hmm. So... Um, you know, I remember, I've probably shared this with you before, Pete. I had really appreciated Gus Malzahn with a really candid conversation that I had with him right after he took UCF. And, you know, I, I said to him, generally speaking, Gus, I just observation, I'm not a coach, obviously, but from observation, it's always seemed to me that a fired coach is better off to take at least a year off, recalibrate, and kind of, you know, because it's so raw. I mean, no matter if you mm-hmm. see it coming, no matter if you think you got host, when you get fired, that's it's painful. You know, it, it's yeah. a it's an injury. It's a it's an assault on who you are. Yeah. And Gus said that was my plan, but then this job was so good that you know it had so much potential that he felt he couldn't pass it up. Now I think he's I think he's done a very good job there this year. Um, you know, especially finishing strong. And I think they'll continue to grow in the Big 12. But it was interesting because I think, generally speaking, you know, a guy like Carson now has had some time off. But you also, the flip side of it is if you take the time off and you disappear, it's a little harder to get back in because the last memory is the thing got sideways at Auburn. And yeah, so yeah. Carson's been spent a lot of time. His son is like an FCS level uh, quarterback. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, he's been, so he's been taking trips with him and doing that and really engaged, which is good, man. Yeah. These guys live crazy oh. lives, Reese, yeah. right? Like they're, you know, they work 80 hours a week. They don't see their family. So how can you afford, uh, the guys who do afford take, that? Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> some of the, some of the, uh, the, the money from, uh, your wife's family gets it donated to Auburn probably <laughs> got does, diverted. That, uh, that, uh, I did mention the pain and I was, I'm sure there was someone listening going, yeah, I'd love to endure some of that pain for, you know, I don't remember what Brian's buyout was, 20 million. Bobby Louder LLC. Yeah. I think it was like 15 million. 15 million. Um, he didn't quite get what Gus mind, did. So. Gus got 20 yes, exactly. and nobody gets what Jimbo got uh, to be able no, to. No, no. It's Jimbo still triple everyone. Yeah. That's triple. That's pretty amazing. Do you remember when Gus got bought out? It was $20 oh, yeah. million, and people and it was were flabbergasted by it. Clutch the pearls. Yeah. And now, now it's like, yeah, that's nothing. Forget that $20 million. We got Jimbo over here getting- I got that change in my pocket here. Let me, let me get that. 
And Pete, we now welcome in Bill Connolly for the highly anticipated portion of this podcast known as the Barry Odom moment. <laughs> and we have it, coming, have it that... coming this weekend, Bill. Yeah, that's right. Um, they had to wait until Sunday morning to find out if the, uh, the ancient computers would allow them to play in the game, but it worked out pretty well. I'm afraid I, I keep meaning to go look for that old 25-year-old Barry Odom jersey, uh, but I'm afraid it won't be there. There's like three bins where it could be, and if, if it's not in one of those, then it's you know, been lost to time, and I'm afraid to find out the answer there. But at some point, if they win, if they win this weekend, I will absolutely go dig out the old number 39. You uh, have to wear it on the pod oh okay all right i think that's a all fair right. that's, fair, that's fair right like if i had given you a bet this year and said bill you have to do something if unlv wins the mountain west that's right i, I would, would have probably i would have probably been okay with uh taking that on yeah hey bill i want to i want to break down some games with you but from your expertise and numbers as i was going through things last night after the rankings were revealed I, and maybe i've posed this question to you before Strength of schedule ranks. I mean, it's really mm-hmm. easy to say, you know, well, uh, I'll look at a couple here, for instance, and say Oregon's got the 62nd uh, ranked strength of schedule while Texas has 13th. You know, and Florida State has 56th. Where is the line where it's statistically significant? Because we can say, well, 46 is better than 52, and it is. But what is significant? How, how much of a range before you deem this something that is meaningful? <laughs> yeah, I, that's, that's a good question. The way I chose to look at strength of schedule, I, I kind of avoid posting. For a long time, I hated strength of schedule rankings because I had SP+, Plus, which is schedule adjusted. And so I would say, you know, they rank second in SP+. Plus. Their strength of schedule is... 60th or whatever and then people would say they're number two but with the only you know with only the number 60 they would like double count strength of schedule basically and and i always tried to avoid that but i did find a use for it just by looking at like what's the likelihood that you would be that that a that an elite team would have your record with your schedule um and and that's so, so that's kind of the way i've gone about it um georgia for instance like the average top 5 team against georgia schedule would have a win percentage of about 0.88 which let's see for a 12 team schedule that's basically 10 and a half wins and they've won 12 so there you go that's um you know they've won one and a half more games than expected uh with their schedule so that's good, even though it's it's a mere top 50 schedule. Alabama's schedule ranks 16th. It's going to jump up to like second after playing Georgia this week. But that, the win percentage there is still just 0.833, uh, barely any different. Um, and, and, the, and an average top five team would have 10 wins against their schedule. So we're not really talking about – if you're a top five team, you're winning most of your games anyway. And a lot of strength of schedule ratings end up kind of – overreacting to playing say really bad cupcakes as opposed to normal cupcakes <laughs> when when a top five team would win those games no matter what so i do think we kind of by this point in the season most of the schedules have challenged the top five teams a kind of a semi-equal amount and and it all kind of gets, uh, you know, lost in the wash, so to speak. Um, Michigan, even at this point, is up to 54th in SOS because they played Penn State and Ohio State, and they won those games. So, um, you know, at this stage, at this stage, everybody kind of clears the bar, I guess. 
So, Bill, uh, earlier in the pod, Reese and I were uh, diving into some chaos uh, situations, right? <laughs> like, who doesn't like a little? Who doesn't like a little? Uh, you know, get your Bunsen beakers and mix mix it around and and, and see what uh, what could happen. Walk walk us through one or two of your favorite chaos scenarios here. There's the no SEC scenario. Right. There's the everybody loses and the Buckeyes backdoor in scenario. There's a couple different fun ones floating around. When you when you look at the anomalous amount of teams that could end up in the four, which has to be more than any time in this, you know, in this playoffs history, um, that have real cases. What are what are some just different scenarios and situations that you've uh, that you've kind of concocted with your Doctor Evil hands? <laughs> well, I do think um, Alabama beating Georgia creates a massive unknown. Like we can't say for sure what will happen if Alabama beats Georgia. Maybe Georgia just falls to fourth um, because Alabama. One of the things kind of hurting Alabama right now is Texas. Um, the simple fact that we know the committee. Almost in like it's like a legal requirement. If if two teams are close and team A beat team B, we're yeah. gonna put team A over team B no matter what. Sure. Um. And so especially they know, won on the road too. Right. Like, I mean, it was a good win. Like I'm not yeah. I'm gonna, I'm not yeah. wanting to downplay it. I think overall I I treat head to head as less applicable than others, but it doesn't really matter in this case. It's a very important win. Uh. But yeah, I mean, if if Alabama beats Georgia, you know, does. Are, are they kind of prevented from jumping Georgia by the fact that Texas is right there? It has to be above Alabama. And therefore we end up with like Georgia four, Texas five, Alabama six or something like that. I don't know. Um, so that that's the most, the unknown is the most chaotic scenario to me, obviously. So do you think Alabama pulls Texas with them? Well, that's kind of what I'm wondering. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. yeah okay. Except then Georgia blocks both of them because they're too far ahead right now. I don't yeah. know. I, this is a scenario we haven't really seen uh, a team as low as eighth producing a massive win and having the Texas factor. I don't know how that plays out. So that's that's intriguing. Are you surprised to me Texas I is that know. low? I guess somebody has to be eighth, right? Right. Like, that's that's the issue. Is we're just it's so crowded this year. Yeah. Um, you know, Ohio State wasn't probably going to fall all the way to like seventh after barely after losing by six points to the number two team on the road and so somebody has to be seventh and so in Alabama's case somebody has to be eighth and and it's just it's a very crowded field now Texas loses um if you know Washington beats Oregon I guess and officially eliminates Oregon stuff starts to clear up a little bit but Mm -hmm. um yeah right now we are. This is a very, very eleven and one Alabama would never have ranked eighth heading into the final weekend uh, before this year. Stack the one loss resumes. Mm-hmm. If it's Georgia, Ohio State, and who else could be in that cluster? Then I guess you know I. Oregon can't. Or maybe yeah, Oregon guess, or Texas. Or maybe yeah. Oregon, who could be a conference title winner, which would differentiate them. Stack up, stack up some good one loss because man, you're gonna be there. Gonna be hair splitting. There's yeah. This is definitely the year, Bill, where the committee is going to be getting a lot of mail from a certain. <laughs> well, maybe, or it's the easiest committee selection sure. ever. You got like four. that's yeah. That is the funniest part of this whole thing. It kind of fits the whole mo of the year, which is basically everybody looks wobbly and we look like we're almost a chaos, but then all the favorites win and and it's easy. Um, if that continues, if we just have Georgia, Michigan, Florida State, and the winner of Oregon, Washington, that's the easiest selection we've ever seen. But yeah, we're, we're just an upset or so away. And everybody says Michigan's kind of safe. 
if I don't, I wouldn't want to find out if you're, if really, if you're Georgia or Michigan, I don't think I want to find out that I'm safe or not. I, um, you know, because the, you know, if Texas beats Oklahoma state by 50, which they're either going to do that or just lose outright. I'm pretty sure that's Oklahoma state's way. Um, you know, there, there are a lot of scenarios here where just any sort of loss is a very, 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 uh, damaging loss. And, you know, that's fun. Um, it'd be a lot more fun if we actually have one of these upsets at some point and we have an all year, but that was the, that was the craziest thing. Um, by the way, that I found as I'm piecing together my, my Friday column, uh, the teams in the top eight right now which include you know, the top four to start the year, plus ACC favorite uh, Florida State um, and what Big 12 favorite Texas and, and Washington and Oregon uh, against teams outside of the top eight, uh, you know, outside of each other, basically. Those eight teams this year are currently 89 and one. Only Texas has lost to Oklahoma, which, uh, which is uh, obviously not... In, in most years, would not be a, a, a damaging loss at all. That's the only time one of these top eight teams has lost to a team outside of the top eight. So that's wild, especially since we spent most of the year talking about how, you know, nobody looks amazing and <laughs> it looks like anybody's vulnerable and all that other stuff. Well, it turned out nobody was vulnerable in the end. Give me Bill. Friday night, Pac-12 title game, Oregon-Washington. Obviously, uh, ESPN Analytics gives Oregon a 76% chance to win. Uh, Ducks, as we sit here, are like nine and a half or nine mm-hmm. point favorites. Give me one factor in that game that your numbers are fluorescent on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the, the main factor is, um, I think, since, since Oregon-Washington, Oregon has exceeded projections by about nine points per game. Wow. Uh, and and Washington has underachieved against projections uh, by eight points per game. That's why the line has flipped that much. I mean, this is this was a game that what was it? Washington minus three the first time they played. I think my SP plus ratings had the it, like Washington by two point two. Now it has Washington or has Oregon by eight point four. Um, they've just they have trended in dramatically different directions. And I know Michael Penix has been banged up, and he it it, it kind of looked weird on the sideline at the end of the game, like he was. Like hurt his his ribs were hurt or something. It was hard to tell from TV, and of course nobody's going to say a word about it this week. But um, you know that's the the two teams have trended dramatically in in different directions, and that's the that's the biggest factor. Washington's offense is still really good, but isn't you know the number one offense anymore, and the defense is. Well, I mean, defense, I guess, has been okay. They've allowed twenty and twenty one the last two weeks, but Oregon's offense is a completely different animal. Um, and honestly, you know, Oregon was probably, you could make a case that Oregon was the better team the last time they played. It was just Washington won five of six fourth downs and that made that, that allowed them to catch up, so to speak. So yeah, I, I, that's the two teams have trended in dramatically different directions and Oregon looks as good as they have all season and Washington's got ground to make up. If it's close, we know they're going to play brilliantly in the clutch just like they did against Oregon and Arizona State and Utah and Oregon State and Washington State and USC but um you know that's they'll have to keep it close first and Oregon could threaten to to really kind of hurt them early so Bill as you look at the ACC game in Florida State still holding firm at number four in the college football playoff Mm -hmm. rankings but the offense um didn't get a lot done in the swamp but Rodemaker managed to game well 
has an opportunity to improve. And Louisville had a disastrous uh, performance. In in (laughs) fact, I think I counted at least four to five times that Jeff Brom referred to it as ridiculous. Um, So what is uh, what stands out about that to you? What do you think turns the ACC championship game? Yeah, I think it really, it probably comes down to two things. I mean, number one, Louisville has been such a good big play team this year, especially in the run game. The passing game hasn't been nearly as explosive over the the back half of the season, but they're still, they just have a lot of big play threats. And if they can get a couple of chunk plays and really, really put pressure on that FSU offense, then this game is you know, defined in the Cardinals' favor. And and Florida State is very aggressive on defense. They're very efficient. They force lots of three and outs, but they can get hit. They can get hit by some big plays, and that'll determine a lot of how this game sets up. The other thing is just, um, you know, Florida State in general, I guess maybe it's kind of the same deal on the other side. They're, uh, you know, Louisville's very efficient on defense. Uh, they can force plenty of three and, out, three and outs themselves. And what we saw all year was that you know Jordan Travis didn't have to do a ton they were usually kind of in control but they'd fall behind schedule a little more than you'd expect and then he'd bail them out uh he was really good at the third and sixes the third and sevens and that's that's a lot of pressure on Rodemaker if you're putting if if Louisville scores a couple times early and then puts him in third and eight that's not what you want your backup quarterback to be handling. So Louisville's also aggressive and can give up some big plays. Florida State obviously has nothing but big plays in the run game. It's all zero yard gains or 30 yard gains. And, you know, those are kind of that balance is going to be kind of interesting. You could almost see this setting up as a blowout either way with Florida State maybe being slightly more likely, but it it could still go either way. You know, the thing with Rodemaker is that his crowning moment of his Florida State career uh, at least up until this point, came against Louisville. You know, yeah, in a di- right, different yeah. regime for Louisville. Uh, you know, it was the pre-Brom era. But, you know, I, I would imagine, I think you're going to see some improvement from week to week. He's got another week yep. in which he knows he's playing. Um, probably settled some of the nerves. It's not going to get any more intense than the rivalry <laughs> game against Florida in the swamp, falling behind yep. and having to come back. What did... What did the efficiency say last week against Florida as opposed to what we had normally seen from the Seminoles up to that point in the season? They, they were able to – they got enough big plays out of the run game, obviously, especially the one at the end um, to, to kind of ice the game with three minutes left. They got enough of that that they didn't have to ask Rodemaker uh, to do too much. Uh, he threw, what was he, like 12 for 25 yeah. passing? Um, that's – against a better defense that's not going to cut it he's going to have to be a little more efficient and and who knows like if they hadn't been running the ball well enough maybe they would have put a little more on his plate maybe he would have handled it fine mm-hmm. but you do figure more of it goes on his plate in this game that that louisville's got uh, a better offense than florida um i guess <laughs> like louisville's been all over the map but i think they still have a better offense than florida and um you know that's he's just gonna that's what it comes down to he wasn't very efficient uh he made just enough plays to keep things moving especially after a poor start he did get i think better over time and that's that's the game. Yeah, he will be asked to do more. This is a big stage. It won't be more intense, but it'll be more important. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, if he responds reasonably well, Florida State has more talent than Louisville. But without Travis, that that's not a huge gap, and he's going to have to come through. I would think, like, we're going to see Louisville, like, bring the kitchen sink. We've talked yeah. a few times on this pod about how that Louisville defensive unit has been one of the biggest surprises in all college football this year. 
Um, I don't know if my Ron English for Broyles campaign has uh, <laughs> caught any steam, but just a, just a fantastic job resuscitating a unit that was pretty pedestrian um, the year before with some portal changes, but not, you know, they didn't go get a whole new roster there. Right. And I would just think the Jeff Brom mentality offensively is push, 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 aggression, aggression. And I would think defensively, they are going to try to confuse, flummox, hit, blitz, Tate Rodemaker to death. Like Jeff Brom is not going to coach conservatively in this game in any way. It's just not in his DNA. No. There are going to be trick plays. There are going to be shots. He knows they're an underdog, and he knows how improbable it is they have this opportunity. And I think the game plan will unfold as such. Yeah, l- last I checked, he has one of the best records against top 10 teams of anybody. Um, he knows how to play as an underdog. And you're, you're exactly, I was going to mention trick plays. You're exactly right. They're going to, they know how to surprise teams. Even when teams are expecting a surprise, they still get surprised. Um, so yeah, this isn't necessarily the coach you would want to be going against when you're one game from the playoff. Earlier in the podcast, we talked about the success that Mike Gundy and Oklahoma State uh, has had over the last decade plus against Texas. And we talked a little bit about the euphoric feeling there would be in Stillwater to send Oklahoma first and now Texas off into the (laughs) SEC with a big loss. And if you are looking at a statistical personnel XO matchup, I can't imagine a worse matchup than relying on the running game, even if you have the nation's (laughs) leading rusher against that Texas front. I think this is a really difficult matchup for Oklahoma State from a personnel XO standpoint. Am I, am I, do the numbers oh, back up my, my eyes? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I joked to my editor this week. Uh, the one thing I'm confident about this ge- in this game is that Texas will be up 24-7 in the second quarter. One of the two teams will then go on a 31-0 run. <laughs> and with Oklahoma State, the way Oklahoma State operates, it really could be either, either one. They're going to look poor early. Texas is going to take control. And then if, if Gundy magic happens again, everything gets weird and messy. But you're right. I mean... Texas's vulnerability is big pass plays. Oklahoma State doesn't make big pass plays. They get all of their explosiveness from the run game. They just kind of use the pass as a pressure release kind of deal and and you know get Bowman some quick looks for eight yards uh, downfield. But Texas is very efficient against those looks and very good against the run. And yeah, they're going to have to figure out a way to get Ollie Gordon three, four, five huge chunk plays. Otherwise, they're just not going to move the ball very well. And you know, I mean, if you get past the line of scrimmage, like, you know, maybe that's possible. But it's it, it does look like if Oklahoma State wins this game, it's going to be with turnovers. It's going to be with forcing mistakes from Quinn Ewers, uh, mistakes that he hasn't made nearly as many of this year. Um, and, you know, that is a possibility, but it doesn't doesn't feel like the odds are amazing. I mean, that's why the line is what it is. Like, Texas is obviously the favorite in this game. And I think um, I didn't see where the line was this morning. I think my numbers like Texas even more than the the, the sports books do. But um, yeah, that's why. It's because your numbers can't quantify the magical power of a mullet, Bill. Well, and, and just this team, this Oklahoma State team, even when they look good, they have to look bad first. They yes. they really enjoy the taste of blood in their mouth, apparently. And, and <laughs> they can't relax until they've made a few crippling mistakes. So, again, like they could make a big dumb run in the second and third quarters and, and make this a huge pressure situation late. But Texas is obviously the better team here. 
that BYU game to me was just a microcosm of their season in 60 minutes. It was ridiculous. Right? It was so it, much more difficult than it needed to yes, be. <laughs> yes, it was it was hopeless in the beginning in like fraught with peril and then Ollie Gordon going bonkers. I think yep. he had five touchdowns. I don't think they threw a touchdown pass in that game. No, I don't think um, so. And then, you know, them probably finding a way to win. It's literally After the arc of their entire season. Winning the game then ha- until they missed the PAT and then having to win it again and, yes. you know, doing so. It was ridiculous. Yes. That's- so any hope at all? I won't even ask if Iowa can win. Can Iowa score? Can they come close <laughs> to staying inside the number? I mean, I, I, you know, we, we've kind of poked some fun at Iowa's offense, and they've earned earned that i mean i look, yeah. every time i see kirk ferentz in the post game i i sort of, i feel so badly for him because i know um that he wants to celebrate the accomplishment yet it's offset by the situation surrounding his son who has proven to be a really good offensive line coach over the years and uh you know the offense hasn't worked so they're making the change no. and i know that's very painful personally but even if you were to get on the Iowa bandwagon, the great defense, the great punting, all of that. Their top players are injured. I mean, they're not even coming into this game full strength. Yeah. And it's it's a testament to the accomplishment that they won their division and they got there. And it appears that this is going to be very much like the meeting two years ago in the Big Ten championship game where yeah. Michigan, you know, just ran through them with ease. I think it was 42-3. Yeah. Yeah, um, I mean, this defense gets better every year. It doesn't even seem to matter who they lose. Um, and, and uh, you know, I, my joke after the, the game last Friday was that they had to throw that crippling interception to give themselves a chance to win. Um, <laughs> and, and, and that's exactly how it played out. They had to give the ball back to Nebraska so they could force a turnover and go kick the game-winning field goal, and then they did it. Um, and... I mean, that's the answer as far as scoring or staying like they're going to have to force turnovers. They're going to have to get a long punt return. Um, they're going to have to do the things that they they always do against the Big Ten West, uh, but really aren't equipped. And, I, you know, I do. If I'm Kurt Ferentz, I'm certainly frustrated having to answer questions about a bad offense when my team's 10 and 2 sure. yeah. and won the West and all that stuff. But. They're 132nd in success rate. They go three and out. They're they're sixth worst. They're 128th in three and outs. They make no big plays. Their red zone touchdown rate is is second worst in the country. They they just I only feel so bad when he's the one who hired his son in the first place and kept him employed and all that other stuff. And and it's just there it's inexcusably bad. Right. It, it gives run it gives run first conservative offense a bad name when they can't run. They can't run, they can't execute. And yeah, their one chance is forcing a ton of turnovers, which is, you know, non zero, but uh not great. You know, they the goal their was whole offense, the goal was to score uh, 325 points this year you know that yeah. got a lot of no. attention on the internet they fell 109 points short of that yeah. they're averaging 18 <laughs> points per game i mean yeah you know they took the fun out of that that was the like i was really enjoying yeah, you know I, right. I had a drive to 325 in my in my weekly sunday night column and halfway through the season i'm like what's the point of this they're not even going to come close they're not even trying to come close and you know they didn't come close their identity this year was going to be 12 personnel. They had two great tight mm-hmm. ends. Um, and they obviously, Cade McNamara, a good game manager for a conservative offense. And both tight ends, Eric All and Lachey, got hurt. And Cade McNamara got hurt. And their best offensive weapon, cornerback Cooper DeShean, got yeah. hurt. And um, he was their best special team slash pick sixer. And so, 
yeah, here they are. Uh, it is amazing how they've gotten here and uh, just completely unsurprising. Well, and, yeah. and think about think about this too, guys. I mean, what, they're 10 and, 10 and 2. And mm-hmm. although I've seen the fair catch signal called in that way before, <laughs> but had they not uh, ruled that Cooper DeGene signaled for a fair catch, they would have beaten Minnesota on a punt return. They'd have one loss, and we, we, would, we would be left <laughs> saying, look, sort of like Louisville prior to the Kentucky loss last week, you can say, Say what you want about their schedule, but they have a chance to be a one-loss Power Five conference champion. So they're they're that close to that. But if you say that, you also have to acknowledge the number of times that they, you know, yeah. escaped and got the win. So I, I don't think this game is going to be terribly competitive. I, Michigan's going to no. steamroll them on on their way on their way to the playoff. Yep. Yeah, no, Michigan has proven over time, like, they do not give you hope in these games. It would be the first time in quite a while that they gave an outman team hope like this. So, I guess I think we've hit everything except the SEC, Alabama and Georgia. Uh, This Alabama team has found ways to rally. They've increased their own degree of difficulty, uh, not just in the Auburn game, but several times over the course of the season. Yet they've shown the ability to finish games, come back in the clutch. Uh, both teams are a little bit different in that they've been hit for big running games a couple of times. I look yeah. back, Bill. Georgia has allowed 200-plus yards rushing twice this season, once to Auburn, just as Alabama did, and also to Georgia <laughs> Tech in their most recent game. Prior to this season, you have to go back to 2018 to find a game in which Georgia allowed 200 (laughs) yards rushing. Um, And now with Jalen Milrow and the opportunity for the uh, broken play, scramble, keep plays alive, moving the chains, this is a a little bit of a different dynamic for the Georgia defense, which still, still, while excellent, doesn't have as much as it has had in recent years because all those guys, as I've said numerous times, are playing for the Philadelphia Eagles now. So <laughs> I think I think that's where Alabama has the chance for the upset is Milrow having yeah. a big day, particularly moving the chains on third down. If you're going to throw the ball, do it before you pass the line of scrimmage. And then, you know, <laughs> otherwise um, making making plays with his legs. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's exactly it. Uh, They've, you know, excluding garbage time, they've allowed at least four yards on 49 percent of carries this year, uh, which ranks 84th uh, in in my numbers. And, um, you know, Alabama doesn't they're not a ruthlessly efficient. They're not getting seven yards per carry, but they're not moving backwards when they run the ball. They always convert on short yardage when they're running the ball. And so, yeah, you can certainly piece together a a pretty good ball control script for Alabama. And they're going to need to control the ball because Georgia's offense has, you know, even though they barely had McConkey and Bowers healthy at the same time, they are ruthlessly efficient. You know, it's Saban's old line about it's, it's plays or players, not plays. Uh, Georgia seems to have the best version of, all right, well, third and six time to go to Bowers. 
Third, third and five, time to go to McConkey. First and 10, time to go to, to Rosemary Jack Saint on the outside. Uh, they just seem to pick the player they're going to go to and then call a play for him, and it works constantly. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Georgia's going to score, even against a good Alabama defense. This is probably the best Alabama defense since 2018, and Georgia's still going to score, so Alabama's going to have to manage a game pretty well. I do think... With what we saw against LSU, where suddenly Melrose was running a lot more, it does feel like I think a lot of the kind of the elite coaches figured out like we can't run our our running quarterback fifteen times a game every game, mm-hmm. um, but we can do it in the big games, and I think we're going to see a lot of Milrow, and I think it's going to work pretty well, and and that's going to give them a shot, even though Georgia's favored for obvious reasons. You know who has been an absolute godsend, guys, for Georgia, Dylan Bell. I mean, Dylan Bell has done a little bit of everything. He's run the ball as a running back. He's a wide receiver by trade. He's thrown the ball, and he's (laughs) made big plays in the passing game, particularly in the latter stages of the season. If you're looking for an under-the-radar X factor, particularly, um, you know, if Bowers is not 100%, or if, you know, Bowers aggravates that ankle, which, you know, I'm told by some people has been – you know, it, it came back quickly, then, you know, a little fits and starts maybe in terms of, of recovering. 86 for the dogs has been has been a dude when they've needed him the most. Yeah. Yeah, and it's funny too, um, looking at, uh, I think Bell and Rosemary Jackson both are kind of the unheralded, like, uh, I'm just going to say MRJ because, I, you know, I, I'm always worried I'm going to spit out that name too fast. But, um, you know, he's... I want to say not, Rosemary, right? Like the spice. They, that's right. Every time I look at it, I'm like... And, and, of course, Jackson is right there too. Rosemary Jackson. Yeah. Um, but he's he doesn't... He's not on the field a ton. Uh, but when he's on the field, it's very likely he's going to get targeted and it's probably going to work. He hasn't dropped a pass all season. Well, my drop rates, I, I don't think I updated it for Georgia Tech. I don't remember him dropping a pass against Georgia Tech. But... Um, He's like he's really reliable. He's the big play guy, um, and they have no problem if he's on the field. He's probably uh, getting a look, and and it's really, I mean, they're just so deep. Edwards and Milton, we haven't said their their names yet. They've just got a lot of really good weapons, and I didn't love the Mike Bobo hire, but I figured you know he hasn't worked with that set of athletes in quite a while, and it turns out you know he's pretty good at it. So. Um, I don't know about I don't know about Broyles finalist good, but you know it's hard to complain. They've been really efficient. And I think Bell, to accentuate your point, has been like a little bit of Bobo's flair, right? Like <laughs> the Kirby's Kirby's not going to turn into Sean Lewis, right, and go four verts <laughs> and that. So you have to find creativity where you can, and yeah. the creativity has come through using Bell as a little bit of a Swiss Army knife. And uh, I mean, the best coaches maximize what they have with talent, and uh, I think yep. Georgia's done a really good job with that. In the playoff era, and this is the 10th year of it, we've had number one lose. Georgia was number one lost, but they didn't fall out of the top four. It appears this year, if Georgia loses, there's a really good chance of them falling out of the top four. Do you guys think if Alabama pulls the upset that Georgia's done? <sighs> I... Or likely done. Look, if, if there are other upsets and there and you're just, right. you're deciding between Georgia and Ohio State, uh, you know, and to lose and say Washington if it loses, then Georgia's probably going to stay in. But I mean, if you have the most likely scenarios that there's not really yeah. room for the room for them. Yeah, no, I don't think if you're Georgia, you want to find out. I do think that we're looking <laughs> at a you know, it's just 
because the field is so crowded, we haven't experienced this kind of ending before, and we don't know how the committee will handle it at all. It's it's very possible that, you know, as I was saying earlier, Texas, their, their head-to-head win over Alabama might block Alabama from passing Georgia, um, and therefore Georgia ends up benefiting because of it. But yeah, you don't want to find out if if you're one lo- if you have one loss, if um, Texas has one loss, if Alabama just beat you and has one loss. You don't want to find out how that's going to play out. I think it's quite possible they stay at four, um, but we don't know. We we don't know how they of all the precedents we've seen through the years. We don't really know how the how the committee would handle this. Um, so yeah, I, I, my recommendation is to win. <laughs> that's probably the the safest uh, the safest uh, alternative there. Let me wrap with this dour thought. Uh, <laughs> the reason why Georgia would, would get left out if they lost is because they didn't play anyone in the non-conference. The yeah. reason they didn't play anyone in the non-conference is because Oklahoma <laughs> was pulled off their schedule because they were joining the SEC. So could this be some bizarre coda of <laughs> SEC greed as they go and cannibalize the world, they actually prevent their own domination? Like, there's some big thought piece essay there of the the collision of those ideas that I think is fairly interesting. If Bill, I'm going to, let's wrap right here. (laughs) Who are the four best teams, according to SP Plus? Because we always get into this, you know, (sighs) you you match it to, I call it a mosaic. And depending on what you like more is what informs the subjectivity of this, which we wanted because, oh, the BCS is evil and we hate the computers. <laughs> and now people don't like the judgment. Basically what yeah. it means is that fans say, if you don't agree with me, you are biased and wrong and evil. So just give me the, uh, give me <laughs> who are the four best teams, according to SP Plus, that would give us the four best teams playing for the national championship. Yeah, I feel like you're trying to prompt a rant from me here because uh, once again, Bill Hancock said last night, oh, we, most deserving isn't even in our vocabulary. We're just going for best. If, if we're going for best, then Ohio State has their spot locked up uh, because they are they would be favored over anybody in the country besides Georgia and Michigan. Therefore, they're, they're one of the four best. And that's not how this goes. We always, they always pick the most deserving and they should pick the most deserving. And they always say they pick the best. And I feel like they're just tweaking me personally because of it, because it drives me crazy. But the four best teams right now are Michigan, Georgia, Ohio State, and Oregon. Um, those are, you know, Oregon was, like I was saying earlier, they're probably better than Washington the first time around, but they lost the fourth downs. Um, and they've been dramatically better than Washington since. Um, so that's, if we're talking pure quality and who would be who would beat whom, the to, the top four teams right now are Michigan, Georgia, Ohio State, and Oregon. So there you go. Committee should should listen to that. That's right. They don't even need to watch the games this weekend. Yeah. Those are the best no, teams. Those are the go best ahead and teams, pick them now. depending on what happens. That's right. Bill, subscribe to subscribe to ESPN Plus. There's your right. and subscribe <laughs> to this College Game Day podcast. Uh, Bill, always a pleasure. Great to have you on. Great insight there. We'll be back. With the Picks Pod, final one of the season later on, we urge you to subscribe to the pod. If not, you can download this wherever you prefer to get your podcast.